My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here. And if you're listening on podcast or watching on the, the live feed, we're really glad that you have joined with us this morning. You know, every year, somewhere around the middle of July, downtown San Diego undergoes an incredible transformation. 50-foot-high banners unfurl down the high-rises. Every trolley, every bus, every taxi is wrapped in bright advertising slogans. Hotels and restaurants shut down for regular business and reopened around specific themes and targeted at specific groups. And why would this happen? It is this thing called, yes, the natives of San Diego, Comic-Con. Anybody know what Comic-Con is? Yeah! <laughs> so, so my family, it's interesting, usually because we go to work in Mexico where we do a lot of our mission work, um, we will transit through San Diego, and a lot of times we've been there during Comic-Con, and we'll just sit back on the sideline and watch all the LARPers and the furries and the whatever else as they go about just this massive takeover of the whole city into everything that's about comics and fantasies and graphic novels and science fiction. I mean, it's really something to see. You can Google it and learn about it, but really you got to be there to understand it. They even turn Petco Field, where the Padres play baseball, into an entire alternative universe. I mean, this is, this is something that is crazy to see. And while it's fascinating to watch the commitment, the energy that they invest in this, it, you might question what they're putting their zealous effort into. But you can't question that it is incredibly zealous effort, that it is an authentic zeal for what they are doing. Grace Church, we're going to ask the question this morning, what are we zealous for? What are you zealous for? It's not a question that gets asked much these days. Maybe it's because zealous is an uncomfortable word in our society. Generally, it's not, it's not a positive thing to call someone a, zeal, a zealot. Even in Hebrew, the word zeal, is, it's, they say the, re, the word reflects the sound of water boiling over in the Hebrew. And we think about it in terms of, and even the Bible uses it, often translates it as jealous. And jealous comes up with images of someone being controlling, someone being manipulative, someone being selfish with that. We think of zealous, we think of religious fanatics. It's not, a, it's not a word that we use comfortably in the church today. We're much more comfortable with like passionate or excited or fan. Words like that, we're, we're comfortable with those things. But zealous kind of makes us a little uncomfortable when we use it. But friends, there is a place and a time and a thing to be zealous about. Even if we're uncomfortable, we have to recognize 
that there is something and someone to be zealous about. And we're going to see that in our text today. So we start with John chapter 2, verse 12. This is after Jesus last week. We studied him turning the water into wine at the, at the wedding in Cana. He goes down and, well, let's look at the text. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. Now the Jewish feast of Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple courts those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting at tables. Now we need to pause here for a minute and get a little background. It's hard for us to living in a society where there's a church on almost every street corner and different sizes and different types and you can just go... If you really wanted to go have a worship experience on a Sunday morning in America, you don't have to go far. We have to remember in this context, there was one temple. There was one place to go. This was the place everybody had to go if you were going to fulfill your religious duty at that time. At the various times in history where the Jewish people were without a temple, when, they were, when it was destroyed and they were carried off into captivity... They felt totally unmoored. It was, a, it was a big part of their identity to know, even if they didn't go as much as they maybe should have, to know that the temple was there was incredibly important. And it's tempting here, and, and as we prepared this, lady to, uh, this lesson, to pull out the diagrams, you know? Those of you who have the study Bibles and the, and the concordances, you know, you pull out your little map and it shows you how the rooms work and stuff, and that's valuable but in this setting, it's, it's a little misleading. Because what it does is it takes all the people out. And really what I want you to imagine, I want us to imagine here, is something kind of more like Comic-Con. People, people dressed for the occasion, they put their, their clothes on for the festivities, and they crowded into the city. It was, it was controlled chaos. And the smell and the sounds would have been overwhelming. And so while we could look at a diagram for the description of the functionality, what it doesn't tell us is what it felt like, what it smelled like, what, what an assault on the senses it was. The smoke rising from the sacrifices almost continually. The smell of all the burning meat from the sacrifices being gone on taking care of the carcasses of the animals after they were done. People from all over, not just Israel, but all over the world, those who were, were religious seekers from different cultures coming in. I mean, this was just a, an overwhelming time for the senses there. Now, we're looking at a description of how this temple was laid out is helpful, is to help us understand what the purpose of the temple was. You see, the temple was a place God met with his people. The temple was the place where people were to come expecting an experience with God. And they even had a specific court or a specific place in the temple where those who were not of Israel could come and encounter God. It was called the Court of the Gentiles. This was a place where, where the foreigners, the seekers, those who may not have been born Jewish but had converted, they could come in. 
And that reflects the nature and character of God. God's nature and character was reflected in the design of the temple. So you would expect that that would be a place of a people who were very missional oriented. If they were missional oriented, they would want to make that the most welcome. Well, by the time Jesus shows up on this scene here, that temple court, that court of the Gentiles, had become a stockyard. That's where the money changers set out. Now, we have to be careful here to understand. Listen, listen, people were commanded to buy animals or to take animals to be sacrificed. Having stock and money changers, that wasn't necessarily bad. But where they put it and how they were doing it totally prevented people outside of the Jewish faith from coming in and worshiping. They had taken over this place that was meant to be an entree, an access point for the nations, and they had turned it into a feedlot. Now, any of y'all have been around a feedlot for any amount of time, know that's not where you want to hang out. They're smelly, they're dirty, they're loud. You don't want to go there. That's what they had turned this place into. Another important thing that we need to realize as we see Jesus' interaction here is that Jesus respected the temple. We remember the story of when he was 12, when he came down, when he was presented to the priest, when he, when he taught there. We remember the stories that his parents represented or respected it, and they represented when they brought him to the temple to be dedicated when he was a baby with that. Is it Jesus, this isn't something that he is an outsider coming in, but he was part of the system. And for the most part, he participated in that system. And then last, as far as our background knows, we need to, we need to understand that the biblical writers are, are almost always in the New Testament holding Jesus and the temple together. Like there's, they're, they're showing us something in the relationship between Jesus and the temple. We need to pay attention when we see their interactions. We need to pay attention when we see what they're trying to teach us by putting the Jesus in the context of the temple. So Jesus and his disciples, his mother and brother, they walk in and they see all this going on. What's the result? Well, John tells us. He says, so he, Jesus, made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple courts. With sheep and auction, he scattered the coin of the money changers and overturned their tables. Those who sold doves, he said, take these things away from here. Do not make my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remember, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will devour me. Now, for many of us, righteous anger is an oxymoron. You see, we have this highly dualistic society, which on the one hand, craves and applauds a scorched earth policy. We cheer when we see the enemy being bombed back to the Stone Age. We pay huge amount of money for violent sporting events. We, we endorse and we encourage the most violent tendencies in society. But then on the other hand, the other side of that dualism is an absolute pacifism. 
a refusal to engage in any kind of confrontation, physical or otherwise. An attitude that flees all kinds of conflicts. And we see Jesus falling into neither. And we kind of don't know what to do with that. You see, we, we have a tendency, I have a tendency, to fall into one camp or the other, right? There are those of us who, whose first reaction is to confront. Whose first reaction is to, hey, we're going to take over. We're going to win. We're going to do this thing. And then you have other people, more like me, who, like, I don't like conflict. I'm not good with that. It, 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 I don't feel like I'm in control in those things, and so I'm, I'm constantly backing off with those things. But all of us can swing back and forth between the two. And so it's hard to understand Jesus here when he's doing this. And what we have to understand is that Jesus is redefining what our concepts of anger and righteousness are. His example condemns our poor excuses, and abuses. And it's interesting to see here that of all the things that Jesus confronted, think about that. Think of all the sin that the creator of the universe confronted during his time on earth. All the injustice that he saw. This is the sole account of a physical response with that of an aggressive physical response. And so we say, well, what is that? What would cause Jesus to be so righteously angry that he flipped tables, sent animals scattering out into the streets of this crowd? What would do that? And we have to be careful Or we'll fall into another diversion, which is we'll say, well, it's all about worship. We got to get our worship right. They weren't doing their worship right. Like, like we got to make sure that we don't have anybody selling anything in the church. So taco sale is off, (laughs) right? No books and CDs. Pastors can't make any money off that stuff. Like, like we got to make sure that there is no hint of money changing going on. Now, that might be, we may need to take a look at that. But that's to miss the point here. The thing to look at here is, is yes, what Jesus did, but more so what motivated Jesus. What was the thing behind that action? What was the thing that John wants us to pay attention to here at the first? Well, let's continue to read. He said, so then the Jewish leaders responded, what sign can you show us since you were doing these things? Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Then the Jewish leaders said to him, this temple has been under construction For 46 years. And you're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus, speaking about the temple of his body, 
So after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the saying that Jesus had spoken. We've talked about it as we've studied John, that John kind of lays his, his book out like a treasure map. And instead of clues, he uses the word sign. Well, signs are supposed to point us to something. Signs focus our attention. When we see a sign, we look to where the sign is pointing to focus on that. And we don't want to miss this sign. We don't want to miss, by looking at the thing, what the sign is pointing to. This is a sign, but it's also a prophetic declaration of what was to come. And that actually forms why we are meeting here today and not in a temple in Jerusalem. What Jesus talks about, what he does here, is one of the primary reasons why we gather, as we do, in this way, here today, and not continuing to follow Jewish ritual with that. You see, the sign, the words, where he equates his body with the temple, where he equates the three days that he's going to be raised up from the dead, is the sign is something new is coming. Something is going to be transformed. Something is going to change the way everything is interpreted. It's going to change the way the things are done. And ultimately, it's going to fulfill what he said to Nathaniel. When he looked at Nathaniel, he said, I tell you, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending. You're going to see heaven open up. You see, the, the Jewish people up to this point, they had, they had, all their energy was focused on the temple. All their energy was focused on that place where they went to, to make atonement or be atoned for and to offer their sacrifices and receive the blessings and to do the dedications. That's where heaven and earth met. And Jesus steps into that. And he sees how constricted, how constricted in a way it necessarily, even if they were doing everything right, it's still constricted. That's the thing. Even if they were doing everything right, Jesus understands his role. He understands who he is. He understands his, why he is there as the Messiah. And I think that zeal to see those barriers removed, the zeal to see the church born the zeal to see the day when the blood of goats and lambs and doves was done away with and that one atoning sacrifice was made forever and for everyone happened. That is what was burning in his heart. That is what was burning. He wasn't mad at them because they messed up some formula. Yeah, there's some issues he had for sure. But the zeal underneath it, the passion underneath, was for the coming of the kingdom of God. It was for the day when worship wouldn't take place just on one hill in some lonely outpost, but would take place among groups of people of every tribe, 
and every tongue and every nation. That, that there wouldn't be this necessity for this huge religious spectacle, but instead there would be the embracing of God among all people everywhere from the smallest village to the biggest city. And that the knowledge of God and the ability to interact with God wouldn't be constrained any longer by geography or formula. What was Jesus zealous for? He was zealous for us, y'all. He was zealous for us. For the church. For his people. Now, it's a little bit cliched, right? When a guy who stands up, who, I mean, I'm part of the church, right? Like you could easily dismiss what I'm going to say because you say, well, John has to say that because he's the one that gets up. He's a missionary. He, he has to say that. His livelihood depends on it, right? But let me tell you, y'all know, y'all who know me, you know our family's interaction with the church. You know it's not been an easy road. It's been a super hard road at times. But I love the church. And I love this church. And as I let that love grow in me. I feel the love of Jesus. I start to share that zealous love for Jesus. And I see people who are, who are scared of that. They're scared because they don't want to be overly zealous. Well, I get it. I get that. We don't, listen, we don't, we need to be cautious about that. We don't want to be out there doing things that are ill-informed or overly aggressive with that. But of all the things, of all the things that compromise our worship, all the things that are, that are dangerous to the church today, overzealousness is not very high on my list from what I see. I see a whole host of other things. And I've asked myself as I prepared this lesson this week, what, what would Jesus be driving out from us? If Jesus was to show up here this morning and we saw him start picking up a few cords and weaving them together, what would he be coming after? I don't think he's going to be running Alex and the guys off the stage here. I don't think it's that. The things that I see are complacency. The things that I see are criticism, standoffishness, and honestly, boredom. I see boredom. See, we just get so used to it. We get so used to the routine. We get so used to being with the same people week after week, doing the same thing. It becomes so routine. That our, our problem is not overzealousness. We're, we're on the other side. 
When I look at my own heart, that's what I see. I'm not, not pointing the finger at anybody but myself. And as I interact with other missionaries and ministers and people who are out there, that's, that's the issue. Is our love for the church has gone cold. We have a very hard time imagining what it would, where that emotion of Jesus would come from because when our own interactions, it's just not there. This passage is revolutionary. This story of Jesus is put at the first of his ministry for a very specific reason for John. If we miss the heart behind these actions, we're going to miss a considerable amount about Jesus as we progress in this study. Y'all, we have to understand this passion that Jesus has for us. For his church, for his body. He didn't stand off and criticize. He didn't just do away with the temple and, and go off and start his own thing. He was a prophetic presence within the thing at the time until the new thing could come. And that's another thing that informs our waiting too, is because, listen, there's good reasons why you're frustrated. There's good reasons why people get fed up. There's good reasons why people get bored with the church. We're not perfect. We're not perfect at all. We mess up continually. That's one of the reasons why we're very careful to say at Grace Church that we're practicing church. We don't have it all figured out. We don't have it all nailed down. And as a matter of fact, the very nature and purpose of the church, the way that it is meant to be a body of people who, like, who otherwise might not even say hello to each other, a group of people who are drawn together, not because we root for the same team, not because of other commonalities, but because we have an allegiance to this Savior, and then we have to figure out how to do life together. Then we have to figure out how to make this work. And you know, that's what we do. That's what being church is. How do we make this thing work? How do we do this thing called church? There is no plan B. There's no other thing out there. This is what we're called to do. And the way we're going to do it is to recapture the heart of Jesus. Is to let his love for the church form out. Ask Alex and the worship team to come back up. And we're going to take time now to eat together. That's what families do. And we're going to come to the table that Jesus has set. 
Look, Jesus didn't just have a good idea. He didn't just have a passion. He just didn't have zealousness about it. He made a way for us to also share that. And one of the main places where that happens is at this table. At this table, Jesus is the head and everybody else is equal. There's no hierarchy at it. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are seeking Jesus, you are welcome at this table. We don't dismiss by rows. Come up as you feel led. If you have something you need to confess, confess it before you come. If you need to pray with someone, find someone that you trust in here. Pray with them. We'll also take up an offering during this time where we share in the needs of the ministry and those beyond. This is a time of reflection and worship. Jesus wants to continually regather us into his body. We act on that by coming to this table where his shed blood and his broken body provides for us, reminds us, feeds us, and then sends us out into the world as his witnesses. Thank you for being here this morning.